don't be that guy. <clears throat> you know, I think there is just a natural way in which we're kind of intimidated to do the right thing, and um, we just need to pray for God to give us boldness. You know, we uh, sometimes in church life, we joke in inappropriate ways. There are people who, the only time they ever show up is Christmas and Easter. We've got a name for that in church life. We call them CEOs, Christmas and Easter only. And uh, that's probably not the most dignified way to refer to them. Uh, But for whatever reason, their situation in life has made Christmas and Easter church attendance very important. It's just not very important for the other 50 weeks out of the year. And I think, by and large, we have people that are watching our lives to see how important it is to us. And just because they see you driving by, well-dressed on Sunday morning while they're cutting their grass, doesn't mean that they understand why you do what you do. And so invite someone to church next week because there's a pretty high likelihood that they might come with you. Well, this morning we're going to continue our look at Jesus on his march to Jerusalem. According to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus had made a decision to go resolutely, uh, determinedly towards Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples that as he uh, makes this journey, as he goes, it's not going to be Uh, a a good reception when he gets there. Most ultimately, it will lead to his betrayal, to his crucifixion, and to his death. And the disciples are wondering, what in the world does this mean? Well, we know that on this day, preceding Easter on Palm Sunday, that it really seemed that as Jesus entered into the holy city of Jerusalem, that it it was everything that it could be and more. Because the great crowds of people are lined up to welcome this itinerant teacher, this uh, man from God into the city. And they cut palm branches to, in one sense, not roll out a red carpet, but a green carpet for the donkey that he is uh, uh, riding into the city. And they are uh, singing and shouting his name with great glory. And the disciples have to think, we have arrived. Jesus is going to inaugurate his kingdom And yet in the very historical uh, marker of Palm Sunday, we see something of the fickleness of human hearts. Because that same crowd that cheered for him one week was willing to chant for his crucifixion the next week. And it goes to show that our worship is not always everything that it is cracked up to be. We get really excited at the political rally. But what happens... In the days and weeks that follow that. And so today, Matthew chapter 19, we'll look at verses 13 through 30. That's page 696 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be continuing the story and we'll find uh, in this passage that the most effective way for us to worship God is not necessarily the thrill of the moment, but the commitments that God has set up for us naturally in the family that he has created. That we can prove our worship by how we relate to those in our family. Last week we talked about husbands and wives and we got Jesus' perspective on divorce. And today we're going to see Jesus continuing his home economics lesson as he talks about children and young men and what we're doing as followers and worshipers of him to push them in the right direction direction. And to begin with, one of the things that we will see is that Jesus is not really tame. He's not domesticated because you don't know exactly what he is going to do if you let him loose. 
you know, we like to put Jesus in a box. Well, he's, he's going to blow that box up, and he's going to do what he wants to do. Most specifically, what we'll see today is that Jesus receives those whom the disciples thinks, think he should reject, and he rejects those whom the disciples think he should receive. Disciples have been following him for three years, and they still don't have their value system just right and aligned with where Jesus' values are. And so today, we'll hear a lot about what Jesus has to say about the family, and I pray that God gives us the wisdom, whatever family you find yourself in, to be the kind of part of that family that God would have you to be. And we begin by seeing how Jesus receives children, and receives children specifically because of their example of humble dependence. Humble dependence. Look with me at verses 13 and 15, 13 through 15 of chapter 19. Then children were brought to him so that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. So Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven is made up of people like this. And after putting his hands on them, he went on from there. We don't know exactly what the situation is, but we know that wherever Jesus is, he manages to draw a crowd. People are attracted to Jesus. Irreligious people, non-religious people are especially attracted to Jesus. Religious leaders are attracted to Jesus because they don't like him and they want to catch him in a trap. But everywhere Jesus goes as he is marching specifically to Jerusalem, he's not doing it incognito, he's not doing it in secret. He is teaching and preaching and healing and helping as he goes his way. And people are coming to him. And in this passage, we don't know exactly what town it was. We just know it's after his teaching on divorce that there are people who are coming to him and specifically bringing their children to him to be blessed. We don't know exactly what the situation is, but the disciples are kind of annoyed with this because, let's face it, kids can be annoying. And all God's people said, Oh boy. I don't know if they had peanut butter and jelly back in the first century, but I'm sure they had something that was sticky and all over every little first century Jewish boy's face. And so they didn't have handkerchiefs, but you, you know, you had to get them presentable because doesn't it seem like the only time your kids want to hug you is when they've got goop on them, you know, hug me, pick me up. And so they're annoyed and we don't know exactly why. We don't know if this is a delay of the trip. They want to see what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. And Jesus, we don't have time to bless the kids. Besides, there's important adult conversations that we need to have that you're, these kids are interrupting. We don't know what the situation is, but we do know this. In verses 1 through 12 of this very same chapter, Jesus gave his perspective on divorce. And now here he's talking about kids, and he is underscoring his love for the family. Because the family is most ultimately God's idea. And he says it's not just keeping marriages together. Your marriage surviving is not victory. It's now thriving in that role in being the kind of parents that God would have you to do. So here specifically, he's saying that he loves these children and he especially likes their humility. And when he says that the kingdom of heaven is made up of people like these, he's not saying that heaven is exclusively children. He's saying like this, that there's some characteristics of kids that makes up the community of heaven. And specifically, it is their humility. Think about this. Kids have no accomplishments. They have no bank account. They have no titles. Wouldn't it be so much simpler if that was true for us? Because I don't know when it happens, but there's a point in life where 
like you put kids on a playground and they just organize and they play. And for the most part, there's just, there can be harmony. They start to get a little bit older and then they start to kind of like click off, you know, into groups. And then eventually you graduate from college and you start to size people up by what they can do for you. Oh, this would be a good networking relationship, which means I don't really care to be your friend. I just want to get to know you because you might connect me to other people that make my business succeed. It's terrible. It's terrible. Kids don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Yes, kids can be manipulative, but it's, their manipulation is on a much simpler level than big kids' manipulation is. I'm trying to get close to you so that things will happen. They're unencumbered by the cares that we have to deal with. And so Jesus, <clears throat> I love this, Jesus makes much of people that cannot do anything for him. Kids aren't going to bankroll his ministry, are they? You know, you don't have, uh, you know, a budding John the Baptist Jr. uh, in in the, you know, children's church here, whatever it is that's going on. But Jesus is making much of people who cannot do much for him. And he is adamant to receive them. And what I love here, parents, this is for you. Jesus gives these kids three of the most essential ingredients that they need from you. And I wish sometimes that Jesus was a husband or that Jesus was a father because then I would love to see his example of how would he do marriage for the glory of God or, you know, uh, would he do timeouts? You know, what, what does Jesus do? How does he handle this? <clears throat> but we see that even as a single man, he, he gives to these children three essential gifts. He gives them his time, he gives them his touch, and he gives them his prayers. And in the Old Testament, these three things were all kind of wrapped up together. They weren't like, you know, for some of us, some of you are so OCD, you're CDO, you know? I mean, you're like, you got to get the letters straight because you're so OCD, you know? You got to make it sure it's alphabetical. And, 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 and then your responsibilities become just little checkoffs on your day. Oh, did this, did this, kissed the wife, ate the food, did the dishes, and that's not a relationship. And so uh, for, for a pious Jewish person, um, spiritual leadership of their home was an essential ingredient. They didn't make a distinction between what was secular and what was sacred. So one of the things that I don't do nearly enough that I wish that I did more, <clears throat> something that I encourage new dads, if you have been a, um, if you've had a kid, I think since you've been here, there's one of two resources that I give to every dad. <clears throat> and one of them is called a, a Father's Guide to Blessing His Children. And it's this wonderful little set of three-by-five cards that take the blessings of the Bible. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and give you peace forever. And, and basically, they put these little three-by-five cards together so that um, dads, it helps you memorize Scripture as you pray them over your kids. And so the way that blessings would happen in the Old Testament was a blending of not just prayer, but time that was very intimate and touch. And so the way that they would do it, Caleb, come here, let me get you to stand up. He knew I was going to do this, so don't think that I'm freaking my kid out, all right? Are we good? No, you don't have to face them. They're scary. Look at me. I'm not scary. <clears throat> the way that they would do this is a father would lay his hands on his kid's head, and he would bless him and say, I see God in you, and I see wonderful things that he is doing. God's blessings. Kiss him. And it wasn't just, God, thanks for the kids. Keep them quiet. Help them get good grades. Help them not to annoy their little sister. It was something that was intimate, where it was time stopped 
and there was touch, and there was prayer. And so here's a question for you, dads, and not just for you dads, but moms. Do you give your kids these gifts? Do your kids know that they have your time? And how much time does this thing get? How much time does your business get? Are you able to clock out when you go home? Are you able to check in with being a dad and check out of being an employee? Do your kids know that you love them? And listen, guys, I know that's tough for some of us to say. <clears throat> Don't just hug them when they're little. Some of you got big boys and big girls. Love on them too. They need it. They just will not tell you it. They will refuse to think that they need hugged and they need loved on. I'm telling you, Jesus wants you to touch your kids. He wants you to tell them that you love them. He wants you to give, you your, give of your time. He wants you to pray for them. And if there's anything that we learn from this passage and this humble dependence, listen, your kids depend upon you, not just for life and a home and for food, but to be a spiritual example for them of not just a Christianity that goes to church on Sunday or maybe just on Christmas and Easter, but that is lived out in the things that you are pushing them towards to being a child of God and not just growing up to be successful, whatever that means. So if there's anything that this passage te teaches us, it's the priority of making sure that we pass on the gospel to the next generation. It is caught more than it is taught. <clears throat> the, the picture starts to change here a little bit because it's not a little boy that comes to Jesus next. It's a young man. And we're specifically told in all three gospels that he's a young man. And so this probably means late teens, early 20s. And he, he's a man with some resources, as we'll see here. But we'll see that Jesus has received these kids that can't do anything for him. Well, there's a young man that can do something for him. And ultimately, Jesus rejects him because of his lack of complete surrender. Jesus has just talked about divorce, and now he's talked about kids, and he's about to talk about money. And if there's anything that makes marriage tough, kids and money are two of the top four that will sink your marriage. And Jesus is just, he's like, well, I'm going to go there. Let's deal with all the hot topics here today. And so look with me at verses 16 through 20 at what the Lord has to say to us. Just then, so as the kids have been blessed and are departing, just then someone came up and asked him, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Well, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus said to him, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The young man asked him, and Jesus answered, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? This young man in verse 16 is kind of ingloriously simply referred to as someone. Then someone came up to him. It's not till verse 22 that we will see that he is a young man who has many possessions. And so I think by the way that this uh, passage of scripture is, is maybe sometimes set apart in your Bible text as the rich young ruler, we think that we can't relate to him. <clears throat> we tend to think that he is um, the kind of guy who is like, um, I don't know what, how, what would be the Jewish way to say Donald Trump, but we think he's Donald Trump. He's filthy rich. He's rolling in it. He's got, you know, Shalom Towers in his name or something like that. He's got all this stuff, and we tend to think that he's so rich that we can't identify with him. 
And, and, and the truth is that most likely there were two classes really in Judaism. There were the poor and there were the rich. But in the first century, there was this small but growing group of middle class people. Not many. They were business people. And they weren't poor, but they certainly weren't filthy rich. The only thing that we know about this person is, is that he had, what's the text say? Many possessions. Which frankly sounds like most of you in this room. How many trucks would it take for you to move? Some of you are going, dear God, I don't even want to think about that. Some of you, you get an angina, just going, oh my goodness, I don't want to think about moving. How many trucks would it take for you to move? And so, if it's the biggest honking truck that you can think of, plus all of your friends' pickup trucks, so that you have like a redneck convention in your front yard trying to get you moved, then you're this guy. You may not be a ruler, you're a rich young man, according to this standard, and certainly when you start to look at the, the world, and so this, this man is us. And Jesus has just commended the humility and dependence of these kids, and this young man proudly kind of assumes that he can earn eternal life. Did you see what he said? What do I have to do to obtain, to have, to buy? eternal life. This was going to be another one of his possessions to kind of add to his collection. I've got all kinds of things. I've got many possessions. I'd like for eternal life to be one of them. And I love the way Jesus deals with this. Because the guy asks Jesus very directly a question. What do I have to do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus like doesn't really answer him directly. He points him back to the Old Testament. He says, what are you calling me good for? There's only one who's good. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. So listen, was Jesus completely capable of answering this young man and putting him in his place? Absolutely. But the Son of God does not just kind of give his, well, I'm going to tell you the secret to your best life now. He says, no. What did the Scriptures say? And I would just kind of say here to you that your friends probably need a lot less of your opinion and a lot more of the Word of God in their life. Oh, we're really quick to give advice. Like, you've got it all figured out. I don't. I don't. I'm figuring out one day at a time. And so are you too. So what's much better than my advice or your advice? The Word of God. And he says, listen, let me point you in the right direction. <clears throat> you need to keep the commands. And so the young man kind of gets into it with Jesus. Okay, well, which commands are you talking about? And then what does Jesus do? It's fascinating. He lists command six seven, eight, nine, and five in that order. Half of the Ten Commandments. And if you know anything about the Ten Commandments, uh, they, they, they are referred to as the two tables because one table of commandments is specifically related to how we relate to God. You shall have no other gods before me, no graven images, don't take his name in vain, keep the Sabbath holy. And then the other six, the second table, is all about how we relate to one another. Don't, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet. Jesus here in his response to this rich young man quotes everything from the second table except for commandment number 10 and we'll find out here in a second why Jesus doesn't talk about coveting. Why does he do this? Why does he not talk about any of the theological relationship to God table? Because here's the thing, you can claim to be a follower of God all day long if that's not observable. I mean, I can say, I believe in God, I don't know if you can live in vain, I keep the Sabbath holy. And there's no real superior way to kind of verify that. 
but I can tell if you have killed someone. That's pretty obvious. I, there's going to be a background check that we can run, and we can figure out if you have stolen something. We can tell if you have uh, borne false witness. These things are observable. And so Jesus is kind of dealing with this young man on the level of observable morality. And the young man is pretty darn pleased with where he's at. What's he say? He goes, oh, well, great. If that's the list, cha-ching, I have kept all of these. And yet when he says this, even though he's satisfied with his external reactions, there is a sense in which he is dissatisfied with his own legalistic morality. Because in verse 20, he says, I've kept all these. What do I still lack? His righteousness had only gotten him so far. And there was a sense of uncertainty, a lack of assurance that his external actions really aren't quite good enough. Now, by now, Jesus' disciples, what in the world are they thinking? All right, Jesus has received these kids that can't do nothing. Here is a rich Young, handsome, that's not in the Bible, we'll just throw it in there. Rich, young, handsome, commandment-keeping young man. Sign him up! Let's get him on the leadership track really quick. And the disciples, you have to believe at this moment, are salivating at the drooling on themselves. You know, they've got to change their toga. They're, they're absolutely enthralled with the prospect of getting this guy on the team. And you know what? Jesus just isn't all that excited right yet. Because he receives those whom the disciples think he should reject in the kids. And most ultimately, he rejects those whom the disciples think he should receive. By his own admission, the young man will walk away and ultimately be rejected. Because in his question, what else do I lack? He knows that there is something out there, and he doesn't even have the capacity to grasp what it is. And by asking the question, we see something I think that is tough. While he may have enjoyed many possessions, this third and final question of the young man shows a soul poverty that he is aware of but doesn't know what to deal with. He had many possessions, but he had soul poverty. And finally, in verse 21, Jesus gives his last response in this conversation with this young man. He says, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, Go, sell your belongings and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Jesus finally gets to the heart of the issue. He finally talks, not on his, kind of on his own. He says, here's the issue. I've sent you back to the word. I've told you to keep the commandments. And now he gets to the heart of the, the issue, and he demonstrates that this young man violates the first commandment because money most ultimately is this guy's God. And moreover, he, he breaks the 10th commandment, which is the only one from the second table that Jesus has not mentioned about coveting. The problem with this guy is he doesn't just covet other people's stuff. He covets his own stuff so much that he won't part with it. It's a disease. He's a materialist. <clears throat> and so the guy goes from thinking, hey, I've, I, have, I have kept all these commandments since my youth. I'm a law keeper. And Jesus says very calmly, no. When you stop to think about it, you are a law breaker. Yahweh is not your God, and you're so, your stuff possesses you so much, you don't even have the capacity to give it away. And so you sit there and you hear this, and you go, 
Wow, if this is the condition for following Jesus, how many of you have given up all your stuff? I mean, you all have homes, right? And you drove cars to get here. So is this just an impossible standard? No, Jesus is trying to put his finger on the nerve of what is the problem with this guy. But look at verses 22 through 26. The disciples are watching all this and going, what in the world is happening? It says, when the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And then Jesus said to the disciples, I assure you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus simply comments on the fact that he'll not be followed much by the rich. They have too much to give up. And Jesus has just commented on this humility that is so important. You see, it's tough for rich people to (laughs) repent. As a matter of fact, there's an article, I think it's on my Facebook page, on the theology of Donald Trump. And I don't say this to get political, this is theological. But Donald Trump is on record saying he has never asked for forgiveness for anything because he's never done anything bad enough that required him asking for forgiveness. It is tough for a rich person to admit their shortcomings, especially when they've made their millions themselves. And so he is telling us it's hard because when you have amassed a fortune and built an empire, it's very difficult to reorient all of these self-centered principles to reorient them to principles that are aligned with the kingdom of God. And God is calling for a radical surrender, and that surrender for you might be your riches or it might be your relationships. He says, anyone who honors father or mother more than me is what? Not worthy of me. We know that one of the Ten Commandments is to honor our father and mother, so he's not telling us to hate our parents. He's telling us that our love for Christ should be in such a distant first place that whatever comes second looks like hatred. That we love Christ so much and are aligned to His priorities that nothing vies for that first and primary position. Here's the thing that is so ironic. This young man seems like he was capable of making a huge contribution. And if Jesus would have said, hey, listen, I need you to pay $10,000 to the temple treasury fund, there's the implication that this man would have done it and been happy, and if that's what it took to get eternal life, he'd do it. But it's one thing to make a donation from your wealth, and it's another thing to make a surrender of your wealth. And Jesus put his finger on that thing that was going to keep him from being the Lord of this man's life. You can't have two lords. You just can't do it. You will love the one and you will hate the other. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm giving you an option. It's either me or it's money. And the young man walked away sad because he is going to keep his possessions or forfeit eternal life. Now I have to make one comment before we move on here because I've heard a lot of foolishness about what is this needle and the camel and all that kind of stuff. All right, listen, do we believe that God made everything out of nothing? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> do we need to like find a way to explain away a giant camel going through a sewing needle? No, we don't. 
And yet there are people who have a suspicious view of the inspiration of Scripture who have tried to make the miracle less miraculous. And they've tried to say, well, you know, if a, if a camel would get down on its knees, there's this little midget gate that's not quite camel height. It's like midget camel height. And if the camel will get down on its knees, it can actually pass through the needle gate. There's a gate called the needle gate. There's a Hebrew word for that. It's called phooey. There is no archaeological evidence that there is anything called a needle gate. Go to the Holy Lands, take a tour, and ask your tour guide where the, the needle gate is, and he'll call you a noodlehead. It doesn't exist. And so why in the world do we feel like we need to help the Scripture out to make something that is impossible with man but possible with God a little bit more possible? It's a man-centered way of trying to take the supernatural and make it natural. Oh, it's not really meaning a camel through the eye of a sewing needle. It's a camel crawling through a little door. Ridiculous. And so Jesus is trying to make the conditions as clear as possible. And he's not saying that all the poor get in and all the rich are out. He's just saying, apart from God working on the heart of somebody, no one will come to Christ, rich or poor. Unless you're willing to allow God to reorient the guiding principles of your life, it's not going to happen. He concludes in our final section, verses 27 through 30, by encouraging the disciples to rejoice in their reward. Verse 27. Then Peter responded to Jesus. "Um, Jesus, in case you forgot, um, look, we have left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? The temptation is for us to assume that Peter is putting his foot in his mouth because he does that with astonishing frequency. Uh, If there is a way to bumble something up, Peter's your man. He's going to do it. And here, uh, I don't think he's being selfish and self-centered. I think he's just genuinely confused. Why do I think that? Because Jesus never condemns him for the question. And Jesus is always pretty quick to put Peter in his place. So Peter's asking a genuine question. He's confused. He's like, all right, Jesus, if you just said this is the condition for the rich young ruler... We have done that, and you didn't necessarily spell it out the same way, but we have done naturally what you commanded this guy to do. Peter's not following for what he can get out of it. There were no riches that came Peter's way. There was no fame, no fortune. And as a matter of fact, he died a horrible and shameful death being crucified upside down because he considered himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner that Christ was. And think about all that blood rushing to your head and being... It's terrible. And so they're saying, hey, we have simply met the condition that you've set for the young man. We have left everything to follow you. And Jesus responds and he tells them, well, let me tell you what's in store for you, faithful one, for following me. Verse 28, I assure you, in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or fields, because of my name, will receive 100 times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is not telling you that this is the way to kind of manipulate and make your millions. That's not the point. His point is, is he number one in your life? And if he is, when you seek first the kingdom of God, amazing miracle, all these things are added unto you. When you live for joy and you live for popularity, it slips through your fingers. But when you live for Christ, 
He makes you popular with the people that you need to be popular with. He gives you the friends that you need. He gives you the joy that you have been trying to grasp for. And so in this passage, Jesus is promising future honor and present blessing. Where are houses and fields? This life? Where is sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Future? What does that mean about this whole believers being a part of judgment? I have no clue. All I can tell you is it's a common theme in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it in his parables, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Paul doesn't just tell a parable. He teaches on it and says, this is what happens. This is one of the benefits of being one of God's children is we're involved in the judgment process. Jesus is the judge, but we're involved in that process too. And so whatever it is that these future honors are, and we don't need to get hung up on that, as fantastic as they are, the promises in this life are even more so. Jesus says, whatever you leave will be repaid to you. One hundredfold. We have young people in our church that the price for them when it comes to following Christ is alienation from their family. Now, most of you here grew up in a culture where following Christ was something to be a applauded and congratulated. Chase gets baptized, what do we do? (laughs) Appropriately so. Because his dad's in the game. And there are people in our church that they're mocked because of their faith. It's a terrible price to pay. Persecution isn't just something that exists overseas. It, it, It takes different forms here. We've got people that have been kicked out of their house because they want to follow Christ. And they know that the situation at their home is not honoring to the Lord, and they would rather live in their car than live in a condition where they're under a sinful authority. Here's what the Bible says. You will receive 100-fold of whatever you have to sacrifice. And so if I ask this question, men, for you specifically, When you think about your history with the church, not specifically this church, but the church, have there been men in your life who have been father-like figures to encourage you and push you in the right direction? How many of you would say yes? You see, God has given you fathers that aren't your father. And he is a father to you. And the Bible promises that whatever you are willing to sacrifice, if you are willing to look with the right eyes, God will provide whatever you have had to sacrifice. And it will not be the sacrifice that it feels like it is right now. Because God will meet your needs. He will repay you with blessings. And this is not Joel Osteen, give me a dollar and God will give you a thousand. It's none of this manipulative junk. He's just saying that the blessings found in the service of Christ will always be worth it. And you may not see it now, but the blessings you get from following Christ will be far better than any blessings you get apart from Christ. Because the blessings you get apart from Christ, uh, the thief can steal and moth can destroy and rust can eat up, but the blessings that God gives will live forever. And here's the thing that's awesome. God has blessed you with everything you have. And when you understand that God is the Lord of all and you use your resources to bless someone else, 
then there's another layer of blessing that comes because not only has God blessed you, but now you get to take the overflow of the abundance that God has given you and give to someone else in need. And now you're blessed because it's better to give than to receive. And now you get to be a, God has blessed you, and now you get to be a conduit of blessing to someone else. That's what he's saying, is that God will never take from you what he won't give you back in even greater capacity. Here's the thing that is really tough, and it's the note on which Jesus concludes. What is it that he says? Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus rejects those whom the disciples think he should receive, and he receives those whom the disciples think he should reject. How do we reorient our lives to care for the things that Jesus cares about? Because you're not going to get the advancement that you want at work by taking time off to spend time with your family. You're not going to get the accolades from your employer when you say, no, I can't work late because I'm going to coach my kid's baseball team. You're not going to rise up the advancement ladder as fast when you say, you know what, I can't do that because church is a priority for me and for my family. And I need to be there because my kids need to see me there. They need to see that I live out what I say. How do we take our young men and help them to understand that their value is not simply what kind of education they get and what kind of paycheck they get, but how they, under the lordship of Christ, give everything that they have to Jesus? Because I'm afraid that we are as worldly-minded as the rest of the world is. And we have to heed this warning that that rich young ruler, as impressive as he is, won't be first forever. So the question for us as parents and grandparents is where will your kids and grandkids line up? Because it will be due in part, at least, to your influence. Let's pray. God, you warn us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That you being the Lord of our mental life is the only way for us to know what is the pure, perfect, and good will of God. God, we don't, we don't even have to think about how this world shapes us into its own mold, how it bullies us into valuing the things and loving the things that it tells us to love. And yet your word tells us something different. So God, we pray that in light of this word that you have given us this morning, that you will help us to love things and people rightly. That you'll help us to prioritize those things that, according to the world, are small, unimportant, distracting, and that our glory will be found in being obedient to you and doing good to others and not loving the things of this world, but loving you above all else. God, I can only imagine what it would mean for our parents and grandparents to model this to our kids so that we never have the tragedy of a rich young ruler being in our family who decides upon riches and walks away from the greatest pearl of great price there is. Help us to treasure Christ in our lives and in our families.